Hello, everyone. You have Jake and Seth today, and we're just going to gap. There are a couple things that have been uh, a couple things in the movie news this week recently that we kind of just wanted to chat with you about. Seth, how are you doing today? I'm good. Still in quarantine. Still alive. Making it through this time. Powering through. Powering through. Speaking of that, I think one of the things that's helped, at least helped me recently, are podcasts. One of my favorites is Rewatchables. And I'm not hating on Rewatchables. It's definitely one of my favorites. They, they are incredible. And I'm sure they're trying to pump out a lot of content. My question is what they've recently deemed Rewatchable. I think they've had a couple movies in the last few months where, and this is total, like, toxic trolldom, like, as a fan trying to dictate their content. But just talking about a movie called Rewatchables, hearing them for the first hundred movies, they have a clear, distinct taste. And in the last few months, they've named certain movies. And I'm specifically going to call out Unstoppable, Godfather 3, and Ocean's 12 as just beyond questionable rewatchables. There's some others, but I, I think I just might not be the demo for some others, so I get it. But um, And I think some are just like, I'm a little, like it's outdated. Like it's a little before my time, so I totally get that too. But Ocean's 12 and Godfather 3 are recognized as two of the worst sequels of all time. And as far as I know, there hasn't really been a, like a second, like a renaissance or awakening of there being new found love as fans outside of these podcasts. And the other one is Unstoppable, which is a Denzel Chris Pine movie, which I saw. I think it was Tony Scott. And yes. it, it is a total by the numbers action plot thriller with performances that aren't particularly good, a story that's not particularly deep and like a movie that doesn't have that great action scenes. I actually listened to that one. That was one of the three, they let Quentin Tarantino pick three movies and that was one of the three movies he picked. Um, and uh, like, I think everyone knows Tarantino's uh, was hugely influenced by Tony Scott and early on his career was helped, you know, Tony Scott bought the script of, of true romance and that kind of like helped Tarantino make reservoir dogs and stuff. So uh, Tony Scott was a mentor to Tarantino and I agree with you, which is like unstoppable is basically like a B minus Tony Scott movie to me. But uh, to hear Tarantino talk about it was kind of interesting, but by the definition of rewatchable, I don't, you know, I, I think Top Gun and Days of Thunder, those are like the Tony Scott rewatchable, you know, Enemy of the State, I think is, in the, you know, it's like, those are the Tony Scott movies I would go to if I was in the mood for a Tony Scott movie, you know? That was my problem with the choice was for director, I mean, Man on Fire would have been my, I've seen Man yeah, on Fire another, more yeah. times than I've ever, like, the, that was my problem with the choice was just that. I thought the taking of Pelham one two three, which I think is also a Tony Scott movie, was a better train movie. But just for the Tarantino, genre, also, Tarantino's just one of these guys. Though he always has these hipster takes, where I've, he says he likes Rocky two more than Rocky. He says he likes Blowout more than Scarface for De Palma movies. He's just one of these guys where it's like he's always going to try to take this position of like I know more and I'm cooler and like. But I will say, like, to listen to, to his takes on Unstoppable was interesting. But it's like, I don't, like, I think it's some amazing movie. <laughs> I will admit, I haven't listened to that podcast mainly because I wasn't, I didn't like the movie. So I I could be wrong. I agree with him on Rocky 2 and being better than Rocky 1. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. I do agree. Uh, at least for me, as an enjoyment standpoint. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I, I hadn't listened to it, so... It just for me, in terms of understanding it's a guest pick, I get it. And again, I haven't listened to Godfather 3, 
but I did listen listen to Ocean's Twelve, and their def, def, their defense of Ocean's Twelve was what the problem a lot of people had with it. And I understand there's going to be two sides or three sides to every argument, and I get that what some people like, others will hate. But their defense of Ocean's Twelve, I thought, was pretty bad, and it, their defense of it was basically that isn't it fun watching all these great actors have fun at their do at their job? And I was like, yeah, it was even more fun in Ocean's Eleven when there was a good movie too. And Ocean's 13, yeah, yeah. there was a better movie than Ocean's 12. So to sit here and tell me that you're going to have this super flamboyant movie, which really is poorly structured, entirely hinges on a meta in movie gag that you need to land with Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis. And like, it's not that I didn't like it, but it was so lazy compared to the first movie, which I thought put so much time into the heist. And this one felt more like a grift where they're just like changing every other movie, every other scene, there was a new plan. And I'm, That's, yeah. I just hate it. I, I like the first movie is a lot of fun. It's fun to watch the actors interact. It's a really intelligent plot. And the second movie just feels much half less baked. And it's just like, there's less thought put into the plot. The, there's a lot of good shots around Europe that Soderbergh does, but I just don't think it doesn't click the same way that 11 does. I think it like, to me, it's the worst of the franchise. Um, I think it's weird to, to, like, again, I think it's kind of like a hipster thing to, or like an antithetical position to take to be like, oh, I actually like Ocean's 12 because it's like, it does all these, <laughs> it does all these things outside the genre or something. But I, I think it I think pushes it's a boring a, movie. I think it's a contrarian point of view that comes off as more so like asinine, like, yeah. or, or just, I understand, I get those people, but I'm sorry. If you're a movie fan and you're sitting here and you tell me you liked Ocean's 12 but didn't like Ocean's 11, I'm going to dig in. Like, I'm going to dig in and we're going to have, like, an argument because I just don't understand how you could – if everything they said they liked about Ocean's 12, they had in Ocean's 11 and 13, and those just had more coherent plots, like, more well-rounded characters. It's just I, – I agree. I think the, the Defenders – and that's kind of what I came away from with that – ocean with that rewatchables was that they were just really proud to be so contrarian yeah and that I they think were that kind was of probably their worst pick godfather 3 uh also i just um that's a bad movie there's a, a ton of flaws in it i think some people think that like oh if winona Ryder actually got cast that would save the movie but like actually it needed a real actress and you needed to write in the part for robert duvall the fact that that fell through before the movie went into production was kind of like a huge problem the other thing about like the one defense I would give Godfather 3 is that it is a great Pacino performance, and I think that's kind of what's overlooked, but it's like, even that doesn't really save the movie. Um, and it also, like, I think Pacino's better in 1, and I think he's the best in 2, so it's like, 3 is still his third. It's a, it's a, that being said, though, it's a very good Pacino performance. I will give Godfather 3 that, but like beyond that, it's really not that good of a movie, and it never overcame its flaws. And it's not that rewatchable. I'd much rather watch 1 or 2 again than 3, so... To bring it down to my level, Godfather 3 is like the X-Men 3 of the Brian Singer franchise, where it's like, <laughs> it, when you look at the previous two, you're like, oh my god, this is awful. And then when you just remove it from those two and look at it in the genre, you're like, it's better than average. Like, it's solid. It's yeah. good. And then you just, but then you look, take it all together and you're like, with the expectation, the pedigree, and where it could have gone, and then you hear about like the miscastings and all those things, it's just like it's frustrating understanding what could have been yeah. and that what you ultimately missed out on Godfather. We'll see. It's like Godfather three is a movie that's more fun to talk about than actually watch. And so it's like, I get why they did a podcast on it kind of, but that doesn't really make me think it's a rewatchable. Well, this is, I don't want to say my problem with it. 
because it's not a problem. I really like the I really like the podcast. I really like all the hosts. All, all, I really like pretty much everyone, with maybe one exception. I like all of the guest speakers they've ever had. But there are so many great movies they haven't talked about to be talking about. Unstoppable, and again, I know that was a pick, but like Ocean's Twelve, and yeah, that, <laughs> like they had, why not Inside Man? Like that's a more rewatchable yeah. crime heist movie, at least by my standards. Obviously, I'm not picking their producer, but I just think there's so many other great movies. I think they have also. I think they sort of made made a schedule, you know, and are saving some for certain time periods or something. And I also think some of their picks are clearly, you know, made to hit a certain demographic or something. Um, I also think they're kind of staying inside like the cable era for the most part. They're not really going back. I think they've done one or two movies from the seventies and sixties. I think I they think did uh, that's a, Sundance at one point. I think that's a problem. Though. I think I think we're kind of getting in the meat of the argument here. I think they're going the wrong direction to get new content. Yeah. I think they're going backwards for like, and I'm. I think they're going for an older audience and more obscure movies. I don't know many people who love movies and listen to podcasts, but most of them are kind of in our demo. And if these movies aren't connecting with us, I'm just asking, I'm curious. <clears throat> it's the Star Wars question. Are you burning off your base audience to capture a new audience? And if that's what they're doing, then, then maybe that's a good plan. But I think there's, I think there are movies they could pick that would be a better fit, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I think some movies can cast a wide net and some movies are definitely like a niche or like a cult kind of thing. And so it's like, I think they're getting to the point where they're trying to like hit some of those niches. If that's a word. I think it is. All right. I think we've, I'm sorry. We just bashed our, I bash for watchables. If you're listening to this, you should listen to it. It's an incredible show. Just all, if you like the movies, listen to any of them. I just, I will say my favorite still of the of the rewatchables are the three. I think I don't know if it was two or three, but uh, Chuck Klosterman was a guest speaker on two or three of them. I think it was um, Reality Bites. I think he did Singles, and then maybe I think maybe it was Before Sunrise or something like that. But he did three movies that were sort of these early '90s independent movies that was really interesting. I love. He's one of my favorite writers. I loved all his takes on those movies. That's interesting. I'll have to listen to those. I guess, you know, I really can't criticize it for Unstoppable. Also, if Tarantino picked that, that's, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's like, I kind of, like, I'll, I'm happy to criticize Tarantino for that. Like, it's not the best Tony. Like, I get that he has all these deep takes on it. It's one of these things where it's like, he's trying to show off his, his like, movie knowledge, too, and, and the ones he's in, which is fine. He's got a big ego, and he also knows a shitload about movies. So, to me, it's like, you learn a lot listening to him, but then it's also, like, it just reminds me of, like, just like the ego and <laughs> arrogance of the guy. I mean, I mean, he's earned it. He's like deserves it and everything, but he kind of d- goes over the edge at points, I guess. I guess like I'm a contrarian and I'm fine with being a contrarian, but at certain points you can't be a con- at a certain points you can't sit there and you're pushing the contrarian. You're being a contrarian to the point of being stupid. And it bothers me with people like Tarantino where it's like, Oh no, Tony Scott. Like we said, if you're really sitting here and telling me that, you want to talk about Tony Scott and you, like you really want to sit here and tell me unstoppable is better than a man on fire. I want to hear him actually have that argument. Like there's so many, as we said, there's just so many. You options. should listen to the pod. I think you might be surprised. Like I was surprised listening to that stuff. The other, I think the first movie he picked was um, King of New York. 
And it's like, that's a movie. I've got no problem with that. That's like a great, like, pulp Christopher Walken film. It's like, a cool movie. I will say it's a cool movie. But the movie much more people know is New Jack City. And that's the movie much more people reference from that time period. It's also this gritty New York movie. And it's like, uh, it, it's one of those things where he picked the one that's kind of less known King of New York. And it's like, I feel like everyone wanted New Jack City. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say this. Um, this. This is a pretty much a critique on Quentin Tarantino. He is the guy who thinks he's cool because he's friends with black people. But like <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that he's picking the crime nine the 90s 80s crime film that has a white guy as the main guy. Like New Jack City is probably I'm just saying I'm not trying well, to he also, I mean, that, he like also New Jack City like that's a point of being contrarian where like I'm not calling him a racist but like that might surprise he preferred the Christopher Walken film to the Wesley Snipes film. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but I'll also say he has very close relationships with both Christopher Walken and Lawrence Fishburne, who give really good performances in King of New York. Like, he has ties to that movie in a way he doesn't to New Jack City. So I think there's that going on, too. 100%. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't implying that Tarantino was racist. I was just saying no, that. No, no. <laughs> I think I, I meant more so that knowing that. that I'm sorry. That you he's the, are, you're right though. He's the type of guy that thinks he's cool because he has black friends and he'll, he'll justify some things he can say in movies because he has so you know, he's friends with Samuel Jackson. Did that justify every time he drops the end bomb in a script? I don't know. I've heard Samuel L. Jackson defend him and I've heard Spike Lee deride him and I kind of yeah. come down on the Samuel L. Jackson standpoint just because Spike Lee for me Spike Lee's arguments sometimes I think Spike Lee's more of a diva than a rock star, if that makes sense. Like, especially <laughs> given everything going on with the Knicks. Well, I think Spike just comes from it to it from a different angle, where he, it, to him it's like that word has a ton of meaning that goes deep and is ancestral, and it's like if you're going to use it, you have to know how to use it. And for Tarantino, it's like I don't think he feels like he's misusing it. He's he's using it to affect them, and I think that's kind of what bothers Spike. But, you know, from Sam Jackson's point of view, it's like, that's how people talk back then. And Tarantino's representing a certain side of that. And it's not disingenuous or unartistic to do that or something. And so I think both sides have some merit. <laughs> well, a hundred percent. And as a couple of white guys, let me just say, yeah. <laughs> I'm not judging Spike Lee or Samuel L. Jackson or anyone else. They can I'm not saying that Tarantino it's right or wrong. But the one thing I do think my takeaway from it is I feel like Samuel L. Jackson and Tarantino are friends. And I feel like from what I've seen and heard, it's like, it's okay for his, like if you're a group, if you're a black guy, you're friends with a white guy and you have that relationship and he, you think he understands the power of the word and what it means. You don't mind him using it in certain connotations, understanding right. that he knows it. And I think it might be spike not knowing this white guy, hearing him say it and being like, well, fuck you. Like, for all the reasons that he should, whether I'm not saying Tarantino, even because some guys like him, that he's allowed to say it. I'm just saying, I think my takeaway in that argument is Samuel L. Jackson's like, I know this guy. I know he's not racist. I know when he uses right. it, he understands what it means. And he's using that to say something bigger or more, or maybe it's to make the right white on people uncomfortable. And like, I think both, I like, I personally think both are true. Like, I, I think you're right about it, like where it's like, Jackson's comfortable with him. He knows him. He understands how he's using the like wording artistically. But I also think for Spike, who's sort of an outsider to Quentin's world, it's sort of like, who's this white director profiting off all this racist language? You know, it's like, what's the, you know, what the fuck? Like, I've made my whole career like representing black people the right way, using that word the, you know, in appropriate ways and like 
uh, you know, I just think it's a whole other point of view for Spike. Well, I think we also kind of tapped into something deeper there. I think while Spike Lee's been successful, he hasn't had the same success as Tarantino. And there's the argument Tarantino kind of does this exploitation of black culture. And I, I think there might be some of that from Spike Lee too. Not to, again, not to, it's interesting right too because it's that? like they're both so heavily influenced from that black exploitation culture of the seventies in film and stuff. And it's interesting how both of them sort of like ones like this white man that kind of like made all these very um, uh, basically American. You know, they're both like these very interesting pillars of American film at this point. But it's like they're almost at war with each other. <laughs> it really is East versus West. Like, yeah, like in yeah. terms of style, like I'm sure there's better critics who can go into it, but. There, I think it's kind of coming out of the East versus West, and it's Tarantino is the fun Cali guy. I, you know, I'm gonna stop going. I don't know where this analogy is going, but they're definitely two different styles. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think both. I think both can be true. Where it's like he can he is using it artistically and whatnot. But I think you know Spike is bowed with his point of view where it's like this is a white director profiting off you know his cavalier use of language in points the one thing i will say is now that we're talking about it is i do think that that word it usually only makes i don't know but my 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 feeling is that it makes white people who don't consider themselves racist uncomfortable and those are the people who've like when unplacated they give in to systemic racism and now a word from the audience We're talking, we were like all into Tarantino and Spike Lee and racial stuff, but we could just go into the next topic. <laughs> yeah, so I guess when it comes to that, we can, we're probably not qualified to be talking, to be weighing in on the Lee versus uh, Tarantino. I'm not even sure how we ended up there, although, although we were like talking about Unstoppable and Tony Scott. And I, I boldly steered us there as a white man. I felt, I felt qualified to weigh in on this sensitive subject. I, though, I mean, I think the racial stuff's interesting. It is interesting just because the people who do, they're they're just interesting because of the defenders of Tarantino, and that's where yeah. I come away from. It's like I feel like the people who know him are cool with him saying it. Yeah. Um, although, who knows? Okay. Going on to the next thing. Recently, uh, there was some news talking about how John Krasinski could possibly or is likely to be cast in a Marvel movie, possibly as Mister Fantastic, and this has been like one of those fanboy like. Um, online board like topics for years. This has been like an ideal topic. The idea of him and also his wife Emily Blunt being Miss uh, the Invisible Woman has been like a fan, like a dream casting for a while for fans. It, it also seems like Krasinski's kind of been floating around the unit. Like they've been trying to kind of find the right spot for him. Um, I, the other thing I'll say though is just like it just feels like no one's really gotten the Fantastic Four movie franchise off the ground the right way it kind of seems like maybe a cursed franchise i don't know um i think that's totally fair and not to cut you off but i think it's the hardest one of the harder franchises to adapt because you have this wholesomeness that's almost dated to like you have a wholesomeness like that superman and captain america have that that's almost dated and there's also a real family aspect and normally that's not a problem like it's an easy way to hook audiences but with it being like a comic book action sci-fi movie, I just think it ends up creating a very difficult juggling act where you have to juggle four leads all coming together. There's some family yeah. politics, superhero adventure, 
And the biggest problem I think that all of the a lot of the projects have had is the origin story because it is such a like a deep origin story. Like you need to understand why these four people are doing this thing. Why are they doing this? And it's changed. It went from being they're going to a planet, they're going to a rocket, they're trying interdimensional travel, they're trying some random experiment. It's always this idea that, that there's this experiment gone wrong that transforms this family into superheroes. But at first it feels like they're monsters. And then it's them learning to find their powers and realize that they can be heroes. And the biggest thing about this, at least the biggest theme, is in Marvel Universe, they were the first superhero team before the Avengers. Although after the Invaders, technically. We'll get into that later, Seth. I know you're I excited. almost think it might be... <laughs> I almost think it might be easier to like start with them as like the fully formed Fantastic Four for the first movie, and then have your second movie be more of the flashbacks into the origin. Because I just think it is so hard to like split the screen time between the four characters, build a villain, do an interesting plot, and do the origin story. And it's like you're right; it's like it's in space, it's on Earth, it's like multi-dimensional or something. I mean, it's just a tough. It's a tough one to get into a live-action movie. I agree. My takeaway from, and I've thought about this a lot, because as a Marvel fan, the Fantastic Four looms very large in old comics, especially Marvel. And I've always, even as a comic book fan, as a young, like, 10-year-old, when I was starting to get into these, I had a hard time connecting. Like, it felt dated in the 90s as a franchise, just very old-fashioned. Some of the storylines were cool. But this is just one of those franchises where I think it's kind of gotten off on nostalgia for a long time. And to your point, I think to fully flesh out in a modern day to fully flesh out like the family dynamics, it would take like a 10 episode series. Yeah. And I wouldn't even see there being a lot of action in there. I just think it takes a long time. There's a lot of runway to build these characters to get what you want. But I agree with you. I think a more effective way would be at this point, there've been so many movies and there's been the cartoon shows and there you can just start expect the audience, especially the current movie going audience, expect them to have a basic understanding of who the fantastic four are, have a 10 second or one minute write off in the movie. Like, Oh, this is what happened. Like you, you can, to your point, I think you can jump in and then be a fully formed team. And then later on, whether it's in the last act of the movie, or I think to your point, probably a sequel you can really dive into that origin story. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's like, I don't know how many iterations there are. I remember what, the Jessica Alba one being the one I kind of remember. Um, but then there's also one with like that um, Michael B. Jordan did recently. And uh, I want to say there's another one that just went nowhere. <laughs> there's a Roger Corman one. And so Roger Corman was hired in the early 90s. Some random movie production company had the rights to it and they would lose it if they didn't make a movie. So they made a movie that they never intended to be released. And they paid Roger Corman a million dollars just to make a movie. And he did. And by all intents and purposes, it's awful. And the movie studio made it with never the intention of releasing it, only to keep the rights. However, it's been released, and I still count it as a as a movie. I mean, you have a Roger you have Roger Corman as the director, it's pretty legit. Yeah. And like he still made it. It wasn't good. I haven't actually seen it, but I, I count it. So this will be technically the third, no, the fourth adaption and fifth movie, counting the Tim Story, Jessica Alba movies together. Also, the fun thing about that, Chris Evans got his, that was one of his breakout roles. Right, yeah. 
And what was funny in that, those films, he plays a totally different character to Captain America, very confident and cocky, but still vulnerable and likable. And he like flips the dial for Captain America. I was actually surprised they chose him for Captain America because I really liked him in this film. It's true. At the time, I, it, it seemed very weird that he was getting recast as another person. But now that he's like, you know, gone through the whole Avengers thing, it's like you, you barely even remember that he was the Torch. Yeah, it's um. So it'll be as we. What said. do you think? So what? Can, what do you think? Krasinski, do you think Krasinski can pull it off? Or like, if it's him and Emily Blunt, and they kind of fill out the rest of the cast, do you think that works? The biggest thing is going to be the writing, and that's like Captain Obvious over here, but Reed Richards is also a character they've had a hard time with. So the best way to describe him is he's the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. He's smarter than Tony. He's smarter than Doctor Doom. He's smarter than Professor X. And I'm smarter than Professor X. Yeah. I mean, that guy can move shit with his mind. Well, he doesn't have he doesn't have that power, but in terms of straight up intelligence. <laughs> I see. So let me put it this way: in one of the story, in a future storyline or recent storyline, an evil Reed Richards from another dimension is like one of the most dangerous people. Oh, okay. And the idea is he's smarter than Doctor Doom, and Doctor Doom's like one of the most biggest, most famous villains, most dangerous villains. And his they always change his powers, but the main thing is he's really smart. So Reed Richards is the smartest person, and sometimes they played him as being like someone on the spectrum. Or maybe- I guess I didn't realize that his intelligence was like a bigger power than his stretch ability. Yes. So that, that is actually the better way to look at it. His intelligence is more powerful than his actual power. And even yeah, his power is com- pretty cool. Well, in the comic books, like if he needs to invent a time machine, he can invent a time machine. If he needs to invent, like he is always inventing and that's how they solve a lot of the problems. And his power is also in the comics. It's easier to depict in the comics He's incredibly powerful, and yeah. it's something that really is. I think that's the hardest thing. These powers are hard to translate to the screen because two of them, half of the powers, are just hard for the visual medium that is TV. With the Invisible Woman being invisible and him stretching, those like, those are for her to be invisible. You can easily pull that off, but you don't know what she's doing, so it's hard to pull the invisible effect off. And him stretching. I have yet to see a good special effect show the stretching of power. In it's true, though. Movies. At the same time, I would say the thing and the torch are incredibly filmographic and like should translate very easily. But I think they do, and in the movies, I think yeah. those characters do translate well. And I'm not saying it can't be done. I think it can. I think they like. I think that you kind of have to update the character a bit to, yeah. And it's like, I, they, they kind of did the same thing with Captain America where he wasn't, I mean, he's still this like wholesome American, but I think they updated his personality enough that he's like more relatable kind of. And I think they need to do something similar with Mr. Fantastic where it's like, he, he should have a little more humor. Maybe. I don't know. I definitely think the humor aspect's a big thing that was missing from, they tried it in the story films, but the humor was very physical and broad. And I don't think that landed with, a lot of the older audience, which is where you need to land the humor. I think you're right. I think what they, the smartest thing that Marvel did with Captain America was they made some of the things that would be the hardest for him, like the earnestness, the righteousness, but they made that, they made those qualities and they used that to turn him into a rebel. And that kind of is where a lot of the tension, his righteousness and principles is how he came in attention with Nick Fury and Tony Stark, 
And I don't know how they do that in the same way with Richards, but I think you're right. I think they need to make him smart, but also give him a little bit of an edge. Like maybe show, or or to your point, maybe it's showing he's like, maybe he has a dry wit. I don't know what it is, but you need to show him being smarter than people without him sitting there and spinning off numbers and formulas. You need to show him being like manipulative. The whole idea of him, the idea of their powers is symbolic of the characters themselves. The thing is very strong and powerful. Johnny's the young, rash one, so he's the flame. Right. The invisible girl is the invisible woman is a commentary on women in the fifties and sixties. They're silent but strong. And within ten, shortly after the that started, everyone thought she was the weakest. The invisible woman now in Marvel is considered the strongest of the Fantastic Four. Reed Richards, he's elastic because he's smart. He can create new things when he needs them to. Like they, they need to take those ideas and I think really like empower them. They need to update them. Invisible woman that you, you can't write that character today as she was written 60 years ago. So to your point, I think they need to elevate them and maybe take them like one step above, like 10 years where they were, wherever these characters would be 10 years from their origin, start with them now. Like, and like, the, if that makes sense. I agree. It's and you're right. It's like it's hard to represent those powers the right way, even though like, yeah, like the elasticity and the invisible stuff. I don't think anyone's really sort of captured the invisible uh, power the right. I mean, going back to Hollow or like that Invisible Man movie came out recently too. But it's like no one's really quite figured out how to do that the right way. I think it's the hardest thing to juggle because it's visual medium. But if you yeah. show, if you show it too well, then it there's no suspense for the viewer and if you don't show anything there's still no suspense for the viewer and it's like oh that pop moved like and it smashed him in the head it's it's, it's just very yeah. it's very difficult to manage I, I think to be honest i think what they need is just a first movie that slows it down like maybe they don't get the powers until the last to the middle they don't use them in the last act and uh that would be the other way to kind of play it is to go just go deeper with the characters and then let the powers come sort of at the end of the movie so initially that's what they wanted to do with the trank film and it was supposed to be a body horror film much like cronenberg and it was going to be them and that's a that's an element too that has been kind of mind it's the idea of that the human torch at first actually feels the flames and like what's it like to burn without dying or the the thing that's he actually, what does that feel like? The idea that he's this big blob that, and if he can't move at first in the movie, Reed Richards, who's like turning into goop, like the idea of them struggling with these powers was apparently a big thing. We can do a whole podcast just on the Josh Trank Fantastic Four film. I'm fascinated by it. It's apparently one of the best, and by that I mean worst combinations of like willful, like just mystery. The director was at fault. The producers were at fault. The writers were at fault. Like, like it was a it was a failure on, on like multiple levels. Um, the fame, the most famous thing about the Josh Trank Fantastic Four movie is the movie was awful. They had to go back and do reshoots. And ha- so, if you've seen the movie, you'll see that Kate Mara, who plays Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, has red hair for most of the movie. And then blonde hair at the end of the movie because she cut her hair between the reshoots. And they just didn't fix it. <laughs> they couldn't even find a wig that matched. They didn't even try. They gave her a totally different hair color. And it's just so... It's That's just, bad. to me as a movie fan, it's the 
talk about like attention to detail and like in any profession about just being proud of what you're putting out there. No, no professional respect, in my opinion. Anyone who was involved in that movie just came away looking worse for it. Even the actors who I don't blame. Like it was just such a cluster, cluster bomb. Uh, I think that's one of the ones I haven't seen. So, but now that uh, it's that bad, like I'm, I'm interested. Um, you want to talk a little about the what was the other movie? We were okay, about? so that's where we talked about Josh Trank. Um, so, Josh Trank did Chronicle, big hit. He was supposed to do Boba Fett, but his first movie was Fantastic Four. He was like on the on the fast track to be the next action director. Fantastic Four flopped. He was a he was a huge problem with it. He sent out a text the day before it premiered, bashing it, which is never a good idea. So his, this is his first movie since. It's this Al Capone, Tom Hardy movie. And I'm just, if this movie needs to do well for his career. If not, like, if, if it does well, he'll be fine. If not, he has another 10, 20 years of ever. He's back in business. So, Seth, you've seen this trailer more recently. T- tell me what you thought about it, what you're feeling. Um, I think you're right. I think Trank's a guy where he's sort of at a do-or-die situation in his career, where it's like after you have a big flop um, at, with that big budget like that, you kind of have to reprove yourself. This seems like a movie that could do that, although I will say in the midst of a pandemic and whatnot, who knows how these movies perform and stuff. I'll also say it's an interesting movie for Tom Hardy. He's not wearing a facial mask in this movie, but he's wearing a ton of makeup. I'll also say from the trailer, I actually think he's. it looks like he's given a pretty decent performance for, for Al Capone. I know it's sort of supposed to be about this late period in Al Capone's life where a lot of people think he had syphilis and was sort of getting dimension on the mind, but there's, I guess there's a subgroup of people that think that that was an act and that he was actually sort of so smart that he was, I don't know, pretending to, to have a insanity or something. But um, I, I, from the looks of it, I don't expect it to be a great movie. I w- it would be interesting to me if it was a successful movie, though. I just want to say, when he arrived at Rikers, he had syphilis. Uh, he was at Alcatraz too. Oh, Alcatraz! Right? I'm sorry, Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah. Al- Alcatraz is what I meant. Like yes. he got there, he had syphilis. So I agree. He may have yeah, I think by it. the time he's at Alcatraz, it's like there was no act going on. He was just out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I haven't seen. I saw the trailer log. I haven't seen it recently. I'm interested in it. I really like Tom Hardy, but we kind of talked about this. He has a weird habit. Like he did Venom. That was a big commercial one. I think. He would benefit from doing maybe one more commercial movie a year or every other year. I, I mean, he had a really good I want that run he had of like um, like Mad Max and The Revenant and uh, Dunkirk. I mean, that's a good run of movies in there. That's the argument. The argument is he's already done that, and now this is him reaping the the benefit of that. And if that's the case, that's fine. I'm as someone who really liked him in Inception and the movies you said, even though I didn't love Dunkirk, like. I'll wait till I see this movie. I think it's going to be good. I really, I like Josh Trank from Chronicle. I, I like Tom Hardy. I think I'm going to like these films. I just wouldn't mind if Tom Hardy started doing some more. Like, I don't want to say blockbusters. Maybe he does another Nolan. He's going to do a Venom movie soon, so I, I'm probably being a little greedy here. But yeah, I mean, he was in. So he was in Inception and Dark Knight Rises. Are those the two Nolan movies he was in? Yeah. Oh, and, and Dunkirk, that's an old yes, movie. Yes. 
So, and the, the, like the other thing, the habit of like wearing the facial mask, you know, he's in Mad Max wearing a mask. He's in Venom with a face coverage thing going on. He's got, he's wearing the helmet in Dunkirk the whole time. Yeah. Dunkirk is wearing a helmet. Dark Knight Rises. He's Bane who has a facial mask. Um, it's, it's just a weird, um, I, like at a certain point, you got to just show me your face and show me you can act and show emotions with your eyes and your face and stuff. Yeah. I feel like the problem was like, he was about to hit it big and like, he was clearly a talented actor. And he wanted a challenge with the Bane role. I thought that was clearly a challenge that he yeah. wanted to be able to act with his face covered and bring up across this very dramatic villain who was a worthy follower to the Joker. And I think he did a really good job with that. But now it's at the point where I, that's what I'm trying to say. I want to see that face. I, I like the movie star. I like that name on the marquee. I want to see Tom Hardy yeah. in a movie. I want to see the movie star Tom Hardy. I get him doing this, but at a certain point, Give me the movie star Tom Hardy enough so I remember why I'm seeing you in these smaller roles. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, like I think I think his best performance might be in The Revenant, um, and that's one where you do get to see his face. I also like him in Warrior. Uh, that's a kind of a good early Tom Hardy movie. He's good in Inception too. That's another one where you see his face, and it's like the roles where his face are covered. I don't want to say he's bad, but it's not the ones that I would. It's like you know Dunkirk and uh, Mad Max and Bane, Dark Knight Rises. It's like those aren't the ones I would lead with if I was his agent. I actually really like the Bane performance. I I think his his introduction. I think it ends up falling a little short of the Joker, but I think it's a perfect introduction for that character. I do think that's a great scene. That airplane scene. That and, but at the same time. Mad Max, which I know is one of his more successful movies, I don't think that's one of his best works. I agree. I think Charlie Theron's much better in that movie than he is. I agree yeah. with you, and I think the direction and like the sets and the like everything about that film that works, it's everything. And he and he's good, but he's not a standout. It's one of the few films where I'm like, he's not the best part of this film. Tom Hardy to me is a good part in Mad Max, but he doesn't make it incredible. Whereas normally at a lot of his other films especially Inception, which I love, I leave that movie saying Tom Hardy helped make that movie incredible. I agree, yeah. Um, yeah, I got a lot of takes on Mad Max, but you know what? We might That might be getting its own podcast soon, so I might, I might save it for that. Yeah, you know, we'll save that. We'll do that, we'll do that one soon. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, so I just think, you know, Leo won the Oscar for The Revenant, but I think Tom Hardy... Um, is it's like he's he's the actor in that movie that's that's playing off Leo at a high level to kind of get him that award. <laughs> he was the point guard. He gave him. Yeah. He was feeding him the ball enough for him to score. I, I agree. That's that's a win where I think you got to give Tom Hardy some credit. Like we like we talked about as the Irishman. I don't think anyone won, but all those performances were really great. But part of it was because of the people they were acting against, and it really elevated everything. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Revenant was kind of the movie where I was like, okay, you are like a serious actor, but then it's like the movie, you know, he's then he's in Dunkirk and Venom, and it's like I don't get to see your face for two movies. It's so funny. Venom was very successful, and I'm a big believer in Rising Tide lifts all ships. I want comic book movies to be good. I still think there's a lot of green fields there, and a lot of stories to tell, a lot of characters introduced. But Venom was not in my opinion, a very good film. It wasn't even taking off the comic book bonus points for me. I didn't work for you. It was like the bear. I would give it like a five, one, five, two. Okay. I never, I have not seen it. So I have no reference. And so just for a little reference for me, like five, one, five is where I cut off. If you're below five, I probably say you shouldn't see it. 
and Venom's right on that border. Because mm. it's they are making a sequel to it, yeah. Yeah, it's funny enough. Tom Hardy's good. It's got some humor, and they actually do a pretty good job with the Venom character and the symbiote, and it, they play it off as like a split personality, which I think ends up working for it. They're trying to fold it into the Tom Holland Spider-Man MCU. And that was a, apparently a big, I think that was one of the issues that Marvel and Sony were having when they were negotiating is how big a part, how big a part these, these Sony characters could be in the Marvel universe, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. With like, with that, with it still making sense with Spider-Man in there. Um, just the idea of not being nitpicky here. And I think it still makes sense in the larger scale of things, but just the ideas of like if something happens in a Venom universe, if there's an alien invasion in a Venom movie and no Avengers show up, what does that mean for the Marvel universe? It just makes it harder to tell certain stories. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Although at the That's same, true. it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> at the same time, though, there's always a suspension of disbelief, and I think comic book fans are generally more forgiving, although DC fans don't tend to be. The other thing too, DC fans are Marvel fans. There's a big crossover there. I read both. I'm just That's a bigger fair. Marvel it's fan. It's funny, yeah. There's like it's supposed to be some more, but you know, all these nerds are watching the same movies. That's the thing. I never like. It's something that's easier. It's a great storyline, but the crossover is huge, and the amount of people who are seeing the DC movies. I've seen every DC movie opening night too, and some of them I've seen as many times in theaters as I've seen. And Avengers, I love one. I, I actually, I think it's one of these things where it's at the point where it's like the publicity of that, um, <laughs> the publicity of that conflict helps both sides in a way. It does. It's like a it's like a rap rivalry, and DC played yeah. into it more than Marvel, which made sense. Marvel was established as a movie franchise, and it made sense for Ben Affleck yeah. and Suicide Squad. I think it ended up hurting them just given the quality of the movies. As a fan who likes both. Although I'm clearly a little bit more in the uh, Marvel side, but you're right. It, it's I think it is a rivalry that ultimately benefits them both. And it's like I think it kind of mirrors like the comic book world in a way where it's like that the the rivalry between the comics ended up helping both sides kind of. Oh, definitely, and they've made, they've benefited on that. They've had a couple Marvel versus DC events. Yeah. Or they do crossovers all the time, and it's also something I'll say as a Marvel fan, I always brag. It does ebb and flow. It's, yeah. <laughs> it tends to be more cyclical in like 10 to 20 year periods, but Marvel's up now. DC's going to come back soon. It's That would be interesting if to see if that same cycle sort of happens in the movies in the decades to come, sort of. The, the best advantage Marvel had is, in my opinion, Marvel has been built on the anti-hero for a long time, the likes of Spider-Man, the Hulk, and the X-Men. And that is what the last 20 to 30 years of movies and pop culture have yeah. been about. And I think it plays a lot better into their hands. Although, And even the Avengers, most of the Avengers in the comics started off as villains. And they're given a chance to redeem themselves as Avengers. So I think the anti-hero aspect plays a little more into Marvel. Not that DC doesn't have those characters, especially with the Suicide Squad. But their biggest characters are the, I call them Cookie Cutter. The, yeah. the Clark Kents, the Bruce... Wayne's the Diana Princes, they're super wealthy, successful in their own life, and they just happen to be superheroes on the side. It's 
like everything's going great for them. There's nothing wrong. And they're just defending this perfect life of America in the modern day. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, DC clearly need, like needs more work than Marvel in terms of like where they're at, but um, they're gonna catch up. Yeah, and I think like you said, it'll be cyclical. I'm actually kind of surprised that DC didn't do a bigger thing for the Flash because I feel like the Flash is a bigger thing in Justice League than it is in these movies. Kind of. Well, what's funny is he's a huge staple of the WB CW. It used to be CW11. I can't remember what it's called now, but... Yeah, I remember that, too. That There was, like, that show. There's a very popular TV show. I used to watch it. I kind of fell off. They got a little redundant uh, as a show, but the first few seasons are really good. The Flash is a great character. Zack Schneider had a great take on the heroes, especially the DC heroes, and it's not novel, but the idea that they so they are more like a pantheon of gods and like individual heroes in their own right. And they come together as the justice league, but yeah, they're more, as I said, kind of said before, they're more cookie cutter. They kind of all have these perfect lives and not saying there's not tension, but just generally Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent, like Clark Kent's biggest problem is he's trying to get Lois Lane to fall in love with him. And she does for most of that time. She's in love with him. And I guess where I'm going with this is the DC characters are already kind of these perfect lives. I think you can modernize them, but it's hard to do. And Zack Schneider, when he tried to modernize them, his take on them as modern day gods was correct, but he just went about, I think the most shallow way of depicting them as these violent beings. And he didn't do enough to show their humanity. And I think it really failed. Whereas Marvel started off with, all I think, all these people at a very vulnerable level. And we saw Tony Stark start off as a prisoner of war. Captain America is a scrawny little guy. Thor is an exiled prince. Hulk's a fugitive. And you just, you start off with these, and it's not about their power or wealth or where they're coming from. It's about who they are and what what obstacles they have. And I think that's such a more relatable, it's a much more relatable way to introduce these characters as opposed to Bruce Wayne, who is the richest person in the world right or clark kent who's actually an alien who can fly and stuff who can't die <laughs> yeah it's, it's very hard to relate that to me is the biggest problem with superman it's just like it's so hard as a viewer to like see through his eyes and then the whole kryptonite question i think is a huge problem like it's, i think movies have a really hard time balancing the kryptonite question but we'll see so we can save that for our dc versus marvel conversation yeah um uh, I think we got to wrap up. Any anything else you want to? Any other topics? No, that's it for me, man. Great talking with you. Yeah, that was good. Hit the news there. Enjoy your Saturday. All right, this is a goodbye from Jake. Seth, you want to say anything? Uh, it was fun as always. Always happy to do this, Jake. I'll text you. <laughs> Stop buttering me up. <laughs>